we received an email yesterday from Jan in the Netherlands. Now, I was going to send it to you, but I thought I'd actually read it out on the Fireside Chat instead. Um, he said, I've been in- I, I really enjoy watching Tom's talks and interviews on YouTube, and I'm very interested in the theory and message. However, I get the feeling that although Tom urges his viewers and readers to be open-minded and skeptical, many see him maybe as some sort of a guru, and as such, more critical questions could actually be asked. I have one for him about ego and negative feelings, which kind of follows on from this. Uh, for Steven Spielberg, survivors of the Shoah project, I interviewed survivors of the Nazi concentration camps. One day, I interviewed an old man from Amsterdam who, as a young man, had been deported to Auschwitz. In the beginning, he had to remove dead bodies out of the gas chambers, and he also had to remove gold teeth from the corpses. On the second day of doing his work, he found his brother among the murdered. In the succeeding weeks... Uh, the, in the following week, sorry, his parents and sisters were also murdered. He, in fact, was the only survivor from his whole family. Now, Tom, you say that any negative feelings, such as anger, uh, one has, are ego based on fear. So my question is this. Is it not understandable that a person would feel deep anger towards these murderers? And if so, or if not, how should one deal with such deep injustices? Okay, is it understandable? Well... Sure, it's understandable. Is it understandable that people are full of fear and ego? Well, yes, you know, they've just never grown out of it. It's understandable. So that part of the question, you know, probably doesn't mean too much. It's we can we can understand why things are dysfunctional. That's very understandable. But the you know, and is it possible for somebody to go through an experience like that and not be negative? about it, not be fearful about it? And the answer to that is yes. It is possible to go through that kind of an experience and not be negative or fearful because of it. But that's probably rare. Most people going through that experience would end up being terrified, bitter, and maybe damaged psychologically for a long time because they start with fear and ego and it just and belief, and that just builds from there. So though most people would probably come out of that uh, psychologically damaged or, or very fearful, not everybody would. And I, you know, for, for my uh, exhibit A, I would say Viktor Frankl. It would be one of those people who did just the opposite. He also was in a concentration camp. He also had all of his family were murdered in such camps. His wife, his children were all killed. He himself was abused and tortured and had to, you know, labor to the point of, you know, not being able. And when you're not able, then you go to the chambers, you know, to take a shower. So he was in that situation, but he survived up to the point where the Germans fled and he was, you know, liberated from that, from that camp. But he came out of it stronger better, more, more evolved than he went into it. He did not hold a grudge. He did not blame his captors. He could see that they were in the grips of a, you know, of something as well. They were acting out roles and he came out of it and invented a whole new psychological uh, uh, way of dealing with, with uh, issues like this. I can't remember the name of his of his therapy. It had its own name, but uh, you know you can Google uh, Victor Frankel. He wrote a book and described his experience uh, 
And from that he gained. He did not take the road to self-pity. He did not take the road to why me. He did not take the road that this isn't fair. He did not take the road of I need to get back, get even. Uh, I need to go hide. I feel terrified. <clears throat> I can't feel safe now. You know, I, I feel uh, I've been abused so much and violated so much that I just can no longer feel safe. He didn't go to any of those places. He came out of it a stronger, better, more grown up, more caring individual than he went into it. And he had a very similar experience. So the answer is yes, you can have those kinds of experiences and grow up from them. But most people wouldn't because they don't have enough courage or they have too much fear and ego and belief themselves to overcome that kind of abuse. And is that understandable? It's perfectly understandable, yes. But it's still, it is what it is. All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, I'm going to go back to Titi because she uh, she has a related question that uh, I'm glad she didn't get to ask now because it she may be able to ask it in a different way based on what you've just been talking about. Hey, um, my question is about how far we can reach and grow up in a lifetime. Uh, is it possible for an average person? to get rid of fears and ego and start operating mostly from the being level in a lifetime? Or does that take like hundreds of lives? <laughs> and I guess uh, it's my scared ego host who asked this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is possible to grow up a lot. Our growth, you know, like all, like all um, growing up, I guess, it seems to be a very slow process from day to day. But it's not always at the same rate. Like take a, take a child, take a newborn or a two-year-old. They change who they are dramatically in, what, three months? <clears throat> Just a couple of months. They're totally different people with a whole different worldview and a different reality that they live in. And another three months, they're different again because in those early years, you grow, you change, you mature very, very quickly. But then let's take a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old, and you see there's not so much growth there anymore. That For most people that old, they've kind of been there, done that, and the, the rate of change starts to slow down. And we take people in the middle, let's say in their 20s and 30s, and yes, they're still growing and learning and becoming different, but... Not so much different. You know, they're kind of honing and polishing the edges more than they are actually changing themselves or reinventing themselves. So change doesn't always happen at exactly the same rate. And you can, if once you understand the game that you're in and you realize the fears that you have and start working on them, change can happen quickly. You can make a lot of progress in just a few years even. Uh, as long as you have no clue what's going on or what your purpose is or anything about it, it's not so likely that you're going to make much progress. That's why kind of helping people understand these basic things so they can start making more progress is an important thing for us to do. You know, it's important that uh, more people understand who they are, what they are, and what their mission is here because then they will begin to grow up much more quickly.
than they would otherwise. So no, it's not linear. And yes, you can make a lot of progress in a very short amount of time. You get to one of these aha moments where suddenly it becomes clear to you that this fear is what's been making your choices, you know, for the last 20 years and you see it and you don't like it and you come to a conclusion, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to be that way anymore. And sure enough, in three or four or six months, it's gone. It doesn't take long. Yet you've lived with that fear for maybe 40 years before you got to the point that you could see it and get rid of it. It only takes you six months to get rid of it. You see, you can offload a lot of things once you have your intent focused and you see what's going on. So it can be quick. Um, you can, it just depends. Can, can you go from just an average person to somebody who's really grown up in a, in a lifetime? Yes, you can. It's possible. Doesn't happen a lot because most people aren't tuned in. They're not, you know, they're not really focused on what matters and what's important and what's not in their fears. Most people are just wandering cluelessly around, you know, dealing with life however they can, whenever it happens, and that's just the way it is. So when you have that attitude, you don't learn much. That's like the kids in school that didn't pay attention. They just came to school and they sat and they maybe made doodles on a paper and, you know, hung out and didn't actually apply themselves to learning anything, and they could go through, you know, they could go through all of their school that way and come out the other end and still not be educated because they didn't really try. They never saw the value of it. They didn't make an effort. They didn't work at it. It's the same thing here. We, we drift through life without caring and we don't make much progress. And we may have a hundred lifetimes before we finally figure something out. But if we're clued in and we understand it and we work on it, it doesn't take all that long. We can make a lot of progress pretty quickly. That's very encouraging. I will try to do that. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Tom, sticking with the um, the theme of fear, uh, Tor Gaia Co. Uh, on the fear of flying. Um, Tom, I'm terribly afraid of flying in spite of my fears. I've been traveling regularly by airplane for at least the last 15 years. Now, it has gotten better, but still, this fear is stopping me from going on more extensive travels around the world. I have a brother living in the States, and me, I'm in Norway, but I, and I would really like to see him more often. Now, I figured it's a fear of death and also a fear of heights that gives ground for this fear of flying. But also, I had an incident when I was a child and flew with my mother. She was terrified of flying too and therefore was incapable of taking care of me during that flight. And this, of course, left a scar. There's another thing that bothers me, and that is anger towards God or the system. Now, I think that a death in an airplane accident is such a in search of a better word, unfair way of dying. Uh, you sit there deprived of all control and are the most vulnerable person in the world, in, in a, sitting in a tin can with wings, 20,000 feet or more in the air. And if, I know, uh, and if nature decides uh, that this tin can is in its way, uh, it's going to all be over hopefully in a few seconds. Uh, now, pilots claim to have a good control of the situation, and statistics show that sometimes they really do. But when things go wrong, they go terribly wrong. And if I can speak frankly here, I suspect a lot of pilots to be left brains with macho egos and little picture views of reality. This certainly doesn't help in trusting them with my life. Um, <laughs> I've experienced... <laughs> yeah, this, 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 this is a good one. Um, I've experienced uh, that my dreams sometimes give clues of what the future might bring. So I always check my dreams intensively before flying, and that has made me a bit calmer. But the next thought in my voice always says, random events do happen. 
there is also an issue with me wanting every death to be mean, meaningful. And it's hard to see how God or the system suddenly finds sending all of these innocent passengers on an aircraft into a terrifying death experience as anything but meaningful. Um, if anything other, sorry, yeah, anything but. If you could comment on this, and the, the other thing is, is the only way for me to get rid of my fear of flying to grow up to the degree that I no longer have a fear of death itself? Well, there's a couple of fears going on there. You mentioned two of them, and then kind of in a sideways mentioned a, a third. Um, the fear of flying is the fear of death, but mostly it's the fear of vulnerability. It's the fear of lack of control. It's the fear that you have no control over what happens to you until after you land and get out of that airplane and get back down on the ground, and then you have some control. You can walk where you want to or or whatever, but once you're in that airplane, you have no control over the situation. And if you fear not having control, then that's a problem. And I think that is is probably more it than the other. It's a fear of not being in control. I suspect that this person feels that way whenever they're not in control. They probably would rather drive than sit in a car as a passenger. Though they've probably sat in a car as a passenger enough times. It probably all started when mom was terrified while he was in an airplane with her. And he learned, you know, we look at our parents when we're young and they're like gods to us. And if they get frightened, it must be scary. It must be awful. There's something really awful out there if if our parents are afraid. So if you're a parent and you're afraid of water, like you can't swim and you're afraid of water or you're afraid of an airplane or whatever you're afraid of, you can pass that fear on to your children because anything a parent's afraid of is something to be afraid of if you're small and you depend on them. They can't help you because they're terrified too. So in any case, it's yes, it is a fear. And the fear of not being in control, the fear of being vulnerable, you just have to outgrow it. It's a, it's a fear of death. You need to get to the point that, well, the probability that I'm not going to survive this air flight is one in, what, 50,000, one in 100,000, one in 200,000. It's not real high. And just look at the probability and say, well, okay. Is that a good odds? Shall I take those odds? Is seeing my brother, you know, worth one in a hundred thousand uh, that uh, I'm going to die on the airplane? And if you say, well, yeah, one in a hundred thousand, gee, being killed in the car is only like one in a hundred. <laughs> you know, that's a thousand times smaller than, you know, driving in a car. Well, in a car, you're in control. Yeah, but that doesn't help. If somebody just changes lane and run into you, you're really nothing you can do about that. But you don't think about those things, you see, because you feel confident then. So look at the statistics. Find out. Look up and see what the probability of is dying in, a, in an international flight. And you'll probably find it's not zero, but it's extremely low. Maybe one in a million. And is that risk you're willing to take? Well, if you're rational you'd and you want to see your brother, you'd say, yeah, one in a million. That's that's a pretty good risk. I think I'll go for it. And then you have to have the idea that if I'm that one in a million that happens, well, that happens. That's the way the cookie crumbles. 
stuff happens. And if my life's ended, well, I'll start another one. Not exactly what I want, but not that big a deal. That means you get over this big thing about death being such a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's just another chapter in a very long book. It's not a big deal. And if that's what happens, then that's what happens. Take the risk. But if you can't do that, and you just do that in your intellect, then you're still going to be white-knuckled when you get on the plane because it's all up in your head. You're convincing yourself, yeah, the risk is low, and yeah, it doesn't really matter anyway. You know, I just start on another one someplace, and that'll be interesting. I wonder where I'll be next. Hmm, could be fun. Could be more fun than this one. You know, If you just have that kind of attitude, then you'll do fine. But if the fear's still there, you'll know it. You can't trick yourself. You have to actually change yourself. Tricks won't work. They may work for a little while, like, oh, I check my dreams before I go. Well, that's just a little trick that you've made for yourself, and then you have a dream of, you know, lambs jumping over a fence, and now everything's okay. But uh, pretty soon you'll wonder, well, if it was going to happen, I wonder if I'd really get it in my dream. Well, maybe I wouldn't, and now your, now your trick won't work anymore. So you, you have to change. You have to see reality from a big picture where death is not that big a deal. It's not that important. You have to just let that go. It's going to happen however it happens, wherever it happens. You need to go function in your life and do what you do. And whether you die or not, well, you'll just, you'll find that out, you know, after you get there <laughs> or, you know, while you're in the plane and you need to accept that that's okay. That's not a problem. And you have to realize that there's things that you don't control. And there's a lot of things you don't control. Matter of fact, if you make a list of all the things you do control, it's going to be a very short list. Or you have a very big imagination. One of the two. You don't control much. Live with it. Learn to accept that. And accept uncertainty. That's another fear. It's the fear of uncertainty. Control freaks can't stand uncertainty. Uncertainty is the most terrifying thing that they can imagine, not being in control. Okay. You have to outgrow it. And I can tell from what you wrote that, you know, that fear runs very deep because it probably runs all the way back to the little boy on the plane with his mom. That's how deep it probably is. It's not rational, and you're not going to defeat it rationally. You'll have to go back to that point you're gonna to have to accept that that's just the way it is take a big picture view about death and look at your odds and see whether it's you're willing to make the risk and if you are then accept the risk accept it that might happen it's okay but if it's one in a million or even one in a hundred thousand that's a good risk that's better than getting in an automobile that's Probably about the same as walking down the street, you know, not having something fall out of a building and land on you. You know, that's probably in the one in a couple of million, too. So it doesn't mean you stay hidden in your house inside a closet, you know, in a bomb shelter or something uh, because you're afraid of what might happen. That's the fear of uncertainty. You have to learn to live gracefully with uncertainty. Otherwise, you'll end up being consumed by fear. And these fears tend to get worse as we get older. 
the older we get, the more these fears bubble up to the surface and they're harder and harder to suppress. So there's no time like getting rid of a fear than now. It'll only get worse as you, uh, <clears throat> as you get older. So I'd suggest spending some serious time in meditation and, and uh, work on that fear. Otherwise, you're going to find it the older you get to be more and more uh, making the choices in your life. You'll be making them from your fear rather than directly, you know, making them from your consciousness. Fear of uh, uncertainty, a fear of not being in control, a fear of death. They're all silly fears. Stuff's going to happen anyway. You don't have to get on an airplane, you know, to have a sudden ending that's meaningless. You can have a sudden ending that's meaningless in a thousand different ways. You know, you can have a, you can go to the doctor because, uh, you know, your foot hurts and he can give you an antibiotic and you can have an allergic reaction to it and it can kill you, you know, within an hour. Can happen, probably, about the same odds as falling out of the air in an airplane. Maybe even higher odds. So there's lots of things that can take you out with no reason, except that. Thousands of things. Don't just focus on airplanes. You know, you, if you want to be afraid of, of things that can happen to you, there's probably a hundred things you could be afraid of, and then you wouldn't even leave the house. You have to stay in your basement, have food passed in under the door. You see, it gets silly. You need to just accept it. Go on with your life. Don't let the fear make your choices. And it's an important thing to do. Like I say, it'll just get worse the older you get. Well, now, Tom, you're going to have people afraid to go to the doctors with a pain in their foot. <laughs> yeah. So we better 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 quantify that. It, it 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 doesn't always end badly if you do go to a doctor. So just so you understand, um, Tom, we're going to move now from fear to lifestyle choices. Uh, forum user Rando asks. Since 2014, veganism has grown 500% across the globe. Is this a sign that we, as a whole, are increasing the quality of our consciousness and moving in a more positive direction? I'd say absolutely. It's an, it's an awareness of, you know, we are not here just to use things, whatever cost it is to those things. You know, and people... Before they come vegan, they generally become vegetarians, and they often do that after watching a film about how horridly animals are treated, you know, as they wait their death and feedlots and other things, and how they're pumped up full of full of uh, chemicals because they're so crowded and the conditions are so um, gross that if you don't keep them pumped up full of medicines, they'll you know, they'll all die from a from a communicable disease. So if you see all of that. And you see that that's what you're supporting when you, you know, when you uh, get a steak, then there are people who say, I don't really want to support that. That's not the thing I want. So, yes, it's an awareness. I think that big increase is a big increase of awareness that people see that there are not so nice things going on that they are a part of, they contribute to, and they don't want to contribute to them anymore. And once you have that awareness, now you're held accountable for that contribution. If you know you're being 
you know, and that you are part of a process that ends up, you know, uh, what, torturing animals or even just killing animals, even if it kills them humanely. You know, that animal is a conscious being. It's learning, growing. You know, it has children, parents, perhaps. It has connections. It has other cows it likes and maybe a few it doesn't like. You know, it has a life. And you're just basically taking that life because you like the taste of meat. And if it was you or it, you know, it's like it was you and that cow were the only two people on the island and one of you had to die. Well, then, okay, kill the cow and eat the meat. If you live in the woods and you're, uh, you know, a a person that uh, doesn't uh, have access to other food, then you live off the land. And that may include meat. And that's part of the way you survive. And there's no penalty there. That's not a problem. Our whole ecosystem works like that. Big, big things eat little things all the way up the chain. It's how our, it's how our world works. We have to live off the plants and, and or animals in our environment. But if you're in a modern culture where you can get all the nutrition, all the protein and everything else you need to be happy and healthy, but you just like to eat meat because it tastes good. Well, now you're killing things that are sentient beings who have, uh, you know, have a life, who have a purpose, who are uh, functional, connection, have feelings, and you're slaughtering them because it makes you feel good. Now, you see, that starts to create a moral problem. And we're not even talking about a health problem of all those chemicals and the rest of that stuff you're ingesting, you know, when you eat that meat. That's another whole different issue. And that your body doesn't uh, like that much protein and makes your body unhealthy to eat too much protein. So there's a whole bunch of health issues there. But just looking at the moral issue, yes, that's an issue that when you buy meat, you're contributing to the process that puts that meat on your plate. And if you don't want to contribute to that process, then you don't buy meat. That's the way people see it. So the fact that there's a lot more vegetarians and vegans now than there were before tells me that there's two reasons for that. One, people are growing up and they see they don't want to be part of that system that abuses other sentient beings. And two, that they've realized that it's not all that healthy that there's a lot of downsides health-wise about eating animal products. Now, does that mean if you live on a farm someplace and you have chickens that you don't want to eat their eggs, you know, you're nice to your chickens. You probably have them all named, you know, and you, you talk to them every day and so on. Well, no, that's a different sort of thing. You know, those are chickens that are being fed. Uh, they're laying their eggs. You're eating the eggs and everybody's happy doing what they do. Chickens are being chickens. And, uh, so then you're not a vegan. You see, then you're a vegetarian because you're eating an animal product. But is that a problem? Well, not so much. It's a moral problem. At that point, it's fine. But what happens if you're eating eggs and those eggs come with, uh, you know, 3,000 chickens in a, you know, in a, in a thing where they're layered four or five layers deep. Each one has a, has one square foot, you know, to exist in. And it's a big egg making machine. The animals are full of of chemicals and they're treated terribly. They don't really have a life. They can't connect. They are basically in a small cell and that's their life. They uh, lay eggs until their egg production gets to where they're 
number of eggs per week goes down and then they get put on the other line where they're slaughtered. So in that case, you can see there's kind of a cruelty to animals problem going on there. And now it's a different moral thing. So you can't just say, you know, that eating an egg is not a good thing. It might be a fine thing. It might not. Depends on what it is you're supporting with the money you spend. So that's a issue that uh, people need to deal with. So yes, I think it's a good sign that people are just becoming more aware that there are moral and health issues with the way we treat animals, the way we keep them, the way we feed them. We make them eat things that they weren't designed to eat, makes them sick. So then we give them medicine to keep them well until we can slaughter them. It's uh, not a very nice way to treat our fellow critters. So yes, it is a moral and a health issue. And the fact that it's growing says that more people are aware of it. Good for us growing up some it is it is good uh, news that uh, people are becoming more aware and uh, of the environment but it also seems to be tom that at the same time i mean we talked about the sexual harassment earlier but all everything um there used to be they people talk about the good old days i don't think there ever was good old days there used to be a, a cover story and lies told <laughs> but in this day and age Big businesses, enterprises, they're in your face. They say, oh, yeah, we're lying. We're cheating you. We're, 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 we're completely dishonest. What are you going to do about it? So how do you deal with things like that? I mean, it's just it's just getting harder to, to realize that the world we're living in is, is not all sugar-coated and nice. I mean, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just getting in, – in that way, it's getting uh, uglier. But at the same time, people are becoming more aware. So it seems like there's a bigger divide, if anything. Well, those two things go together, Keith. As you become more aware, you become more aware of the bad stuff as well as you become more aware of the, your accessibility to the good stuff. Becoming aware just means you're more aware of things. People, you know, if we go back, you know, in those good old days, we'll find that people were just as abused and, and uh, you know, mistreated and used as they are today. Matter of fact, worse probably than they are today. And yes, there's a lot of lying, cheating, and stealing going on, no doubt. But so has there always been a lot of lying, cheating, and stealing going on. It's just that it's because of our mass culture and our mass marketing and our mass communications, we can see that lying and cheating on a mass scale where it used to be just local. And that doesn't mean that it's gotten a, you know, a lot worse. It just means that it leaves a bigger footprint in mass and not just locally. Probably locally, it's gotten a lot better. So in any case, awareness is awareness of all those things. So we have become more aware of the greed and the self-centeredness and the ego and dysfunction in our culture. We've had this dysfunction in our culture for centuries and centuries and centuries, and it's actually gotten better, but we've just becoming more aware of it. So as we become more aware of it, we say, wow, things are really bad now. Well, that's because we're more aware of things, because we understand what really good and really bad are. Before, when things were really, really bad and everybody was used and abused, they just said, eh, this is life. They didn't say this is really bad. They just said this is life. It's always been this way. It's never been any different than this. What do you mean it's bad? Good, bad. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. You know, it's life. Now we look at it and say, wow, look at all this dysfunction. It's because we're aware of dysfunction. 
We're aware that it could be different. We're aware that there's another way that works a whole lot better than lying, cheating, and stealing. That's good. That shows that we're growing up. So those good old days weren't so good as you think, unless you were a child. And the good old days mean when I was a child and didn't have any responsibility and everything I needed was given to me when I needed it. Yeah, those are the good old days as a child when, uh, you know, mom and dad and uncle Fred all took care of you and life was simple. And now you're grown up and have to make big people decisions. And now it's tough. Well, those good old days, but that's not really uh, good old days. That's, uh, it just looks that way. So I think it all works together. Part of the reason we see all the dysfunction is because we're more aware that that dysfunction exists. The medicine has that same problem. They'll say, what is this, an outbreak of such and such? And they say, well, no, not really. It's just that we never had it really reported before. People weren't aware that that disease existed. They called it something else. And now that we know it existed and it's being reported, it looks like there's an epidemic of it suddenly, but not really. We just become more aware of it. So that's part of it, Keith. Yeah, I, I understand that, Tom. I guess growing up is, is harder and more painful than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, glad you, I'm really glad you can't see my, my face on this one. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on because we've got a few questions and, and time is going to run away from us again. Um, Windwalker, uh, MBT forum user, asked about pre-OBE vibrations. He says, what exactly are pre-OBE, out-of-body experience, uh, vibrations and why do they differ in RPMs and intensity? I know the sh- they shift the vibratory rate of consciousness to accommodate corresponding dimensions, but why do some people get them and some people don't? And where do they come from? Please could you expla- expand on this with any new wisdom you may have gained that in- involves or describes or explains this mysterious phenomenon? <clears throat> okay, there's a, couple of, uh, there's a couple of ways of explaining it, and it's not all just one thing. There are lots of people get different sorts of things, and there's kind of different reasons of why they do that. So it's not a simple thing that, oh, here's the reason for that. There's lots of reasons, but there are several. And what he's talking about, if those of you don't know, that if you get into a very uh, good meditation state where you are pretty much your your EEG, that is your brain waves, are pretty much focused in the in the low theta region. That means around somewhere between three three and a half to maybe four and a half hertz. If you had an EEG measurement, that's what it would show where most of your brainwave energy was. When you get in that state, you often will feel like your body is vibrating. It's called a vibration state. And you just feel that your body is going like this, which is about the theta. That's about a theta wave. That's about four hertz, three and a half, four and a half hertz is about like that. So you just feel that your whole body is shaking like that. Now, there is a um, there is actually some oscillation going on in the physical body. It's not just a consciousness experience. There is a physical experience. When I was at Monroe Labs, we had people hooked up to several things. EEG was one. Another was a galvanic skin response, which just looks at the resistance of your skin to electrical current. And that meter on that galvanic skin response, GSR, when people would get in a state, that meter would sit there and, and vibrate. It just vibrate back and forth like that at four hertz, just like they were feeling the vibration. So something was really going on in the physical body. 
And their skin resistance, of course, was a lot greater. It's a lot higher resistance when you're in that state than it is when you're in a waking state. So what is actually happening physically? So I think physically what's <clears throat> going on is that most of your most of your motor control, most of the thing that, that uh, your sense of balance and motion and touch has to do with, with, uh, with balance. It's, you can liken it to a, a servo motor. Now, that probably doesn't ring bell with anybody except mechanical engineers and electrical engineers. But it's, it's, it has like a null position where it's where it's supposed to be. And then if it gets away from that position, that it gets a, an error. It has to move back. That's how your, your balance is. So that's the way servo systems work. A servo system, let's say it's a radar that's tracking an airplane. That's a servo system. So it gets a signal. The radar comes back in a signal. And the signal says, oh, the signal's getting weaker and weaker. And it's getting, you know, it's stronger in this direction, weak in that direction. Therefore, move toward the stronger side. And then the, it moves the antenna over. Now the signal's stronger again. And then it starts to get weaker and, and, and weaker, but it's, you know, it's stronger on one side than it is the other. So you move. So it's, it's a set of motions that are triggered by an error signal. And your balance works the same way. As you stand up on two feet, that's something that requires constant balance. And your muscle systems are constantly tweaking that. You lean a little this way, and these muscles tighten up. You lean a little that way, and these muscles tighten up. And we don't even think about that. But our, all our muscular system is constantly tweaking to put you back into a stable position or the position that you want your, you know, you hold your hand out. And when you hold your hand out like this, your hand isn't perfectly still. Your hand's really wobbling a little bit because you're saying, hold it out here. And it moves a little and they say, no, not there, back there. And your servo system has that hand actually wobbling around a bit, some a place that's, it's considered the, the right place and every place else is wrong and the muscles move to put it back. When you let go of the physical reality, you're in this theta state, you're no longer in touch with the physical reality. When you're no longer in touch with the physical reality, all of these little servo motors, if you will, all these little things that are trying to stay in balance don't have any input anymore. Your eyes are shut. They don't get any sight. You don't hear anything because you're now out of this reality. You've let go of all your sensory input. You're no longer getting sensory input. You don't hear anything. You don't see anything. You don't feel anything. You don't realize you're lying in a bed. You're just consciousness now. Well, when you start to let go of your physical input, these little servo motors don't know what to do. They're not getting any error messages. They don't know where balance is. They don't know where is they're supposed to be because you're not getting any corrections. Because your data Input data has just disappeared. So what happens if you have a, a radar system and there is no signal at all? There is no error signal. What does it do? Well, it just what they call dithers around. It just starts to dither and look this way and that way and no signal there, no signal there, no signal there. So it just kind of wobbles and dithers around trying to find a signal. It says, nope, nothing there. Go the other way. Uh, nothing there. Go the other way. And that's what I think is this vibration. That turns out to vibrate your system, and it just depends on how your system's engineered. It tends to vibrate down around, you know, anywhere from one or two hertz. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast, uh, but in around four, five hertz, six hertz, you just start feeling 
this vibration going on in your system. So that is perhaps, now this is just me making this up, right? I haven't done any big research project to say that this is really the source of it. I'm just saying that we have a body that is disconnected and people get this pulsation state, another word to call it, they get the pulsation state as soon as they disconnect from their sensory data. And I've actually seen it physically on a, on a uh, GSR device. So I know the body is actually pulsating in some of its attributes, like, you know, the galvanic uh, skin response actually pulsates. So that's what I think it probably is. When you disconnect, your body doesn't know what it's supposed to do next because it doesn't have its input, and therefore it just wobbles about, and that's how you get this frequency. Now, that's the physical part of it, but there's a non-physical part of it. Once you feel this vibration state, that's a signpost that you are in a point consciousness state, let's say, or you're getting close to that. Maybe you're not in it yet, but you're getting close to that. You can, you've, you've let go of your sense data, and you start to feel it, and that becomes, oh, that's nice. That's good because now I'm in a, I'm in a real good altered state now because I can feel that shaking going on. Sometimes if you're fearful, that shaking will get stronger and stronger and violent, and now you feel like you're a flag being whipped in a hurricane or something, and then it gets terrifying, and then you wake up and jump out of it. Or you may feel it as electrical shock. You may hear it as sound. You may, um, oh, like the guy who's afraid to fly, you may hear things going on. Like you, uh, one person I know, he'd lay down and he'd, he'd start to get into a good meditation state. And as soon as he let go of the surroundings, he'd hear sounds like footprints, footsteps walking across the roof or, uh, you know, someplace else. And he knew he's the only person in the house. He'd start see, hearing all these things. That's a fear of you lying there not connected to your senses, something could sneak up on you because you're not paying attention. So if that's a fear, then you will start hearing things sneaking up on you because you will create what you fear in your mind. So it could be all sorts of things. If you think this this letting go of your reality is scary, the pulsations can get very wild and very violent. The thing to do is just relax and ride them. Just just let them be. Um, be at one with them. Be elastic. Think of your think of yourself as being a piece of rubber, a piece of elastic, and you're just kind of vibrating, and it actually feels kind of good, you know. And take a positive look toward it. Make it a positive thing, and as soon as you get positive about it, it will start to get less and less and less, and eventually you'll get used to that. And you won't make much of it. You won't dwell on it. You won't really notice it. And then the pulsation state becomes a very minor thing in your life. So use it in the beginning as a signpost that, hey, I'm in a pretty good state. I no longer am attached to the physical world. And from there, you can use your intent to go someplace or do whatever it is you want to do. So it's a very productive state that you get into. So think of it as a very positive thing. If it gets violent and disturbs you, that's your fear, and just let it go. If you feel electrical shocks and other things, just let it go. That's your fear.
People have a fear of the unknown getting them when they're no longer in touch with the world. And they have a fear that something in the, in the great beyond, in the non-physical world, might get them if they suddenly pop into this non-physical world. Is there a monster there waiting for them? You see, that, will, that fear will all feed this physical thing, all interpret this physical thing into something big and awful and scary. So it's a natural thing. It happens to a lot of people. And uh, eventually, when you get real used to it and you can hold these states and get them very easily, it's just a pleasant little vibration that you pass through coming and going. It's not really something that you even notice. Unless you take the time out to notice it, you don't even notice it a lot of times. Then it's hardly there. So everybody's a different person with different levels of fear and different levels of understanding and different ways that they interpret the data they get. That's why you get so many different different feelings about this pulsation state. But I think its physical origin is in all the muscles and all the all the 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 um, servo systems. And you can have servo systems besides muscles. You know, it's other things that constantly are are working that when you go, when you let go of all the input data, they don't really know what to do. And I think that's the source of the physical component of it. But then we interpret that and make it a non-physical component of it, which then represents our fears. So I would say, look at it as a signpost that says you're getting a real good meditation state. And that's a good thing. I hope that helps. Uh, I'm sure it does, Tom. Um, I have a question here. I want to read out Huda's question. Huda was going to join us today, but unfortunately they they haven't. So I'm going to read out the question. I'm going to apologize to Huda in advance because uh, time is running short. So I'm not going to be able to um, also read out the little story that they put with the question. So apologize about that. If we get to it in the future, then we'll try and get that covered. But so the question is this, Tom. Uh, Can you talk a bit more about self-love? I'm learning that giving to others isn't martyrdom or unhealthy self-sacrifice. It seems I can't be of much help if I fail to care for myself or if other people's desperate needs constantly go before my own. I'm learning healthy timing and boundaries that giving must not go against my instinct for self-preservation. Isn't it true then that true giving feels good? It might seem like an easy one, but I see guilt and duty being the drive for giving everywhere especially in my culture and that's not what love is all about i would love to hear your comments on this then on the other end of the spectrum could you talk about the difference between healthy self-love and vanity where does the balance lie and how much do we really need and when do we slip okay huda you are correct um guilt and duty being the drive for giving as the you know is, is dysfunctional uh, that's not what it's about. Giving has, you know, um, giving means giving from the being level. Okay. If we're giving from, well, let's say the giving that we're talking about is being the good thing that you do. It's about others. That sort of giving is giving from the being level. If you're giving because you feel guilty or that it's your duty, that's not out of the being level. That's out of your intellect. I think I should do this or, you know, it's my duty to do this or because I've been a bad girl, I need to do this or because 
whatever you might come up with. All of that is your intellect. That's your ego. That's your fear. So when you do things out of guilt, guilt is just a fear. Uh, you know, it's just driven by fear. So that's never a good reason for, for doing anything. And yes, when you do good, when you do connect with people and you do give, it feels good. If it doesn't feel good, there's a problem. You need to back up and find out what's wrong. And it's, you know, it, it could be any number of things. But giving is something that is a, a good feeling. You get good feedback from it. It's, it's not, uh, oh, you know, I'll be so-and-so's, uh, you know, punching bag or so-and-so's doormat. You know, I'll just give and, and let them abuse me. That's not giving. That's something else entirely. That's working out of the uh, out of the fear. Out of I'm doing this because I think I should. I'm doing this because I feel, uh, you know, compelled for for reasons of fear and ego. Those are never good things, and that's not what we're talking about when we say that you need you need to give. We're talking about a from the being level, just because you want to, because you care, not because you're trying to get a result, not because you're making up for something else, not because it's required of you, or part of your duty. It's because you want to. And it's not, the, it's not that you want to because you think you should. You just want to because that's who you are. That's what you want to do. So there's a difference there. Then that's the intellectual level, which is full of fear and ego and belief. And a lot of it's belief as well, not just ego. And the difference between that and the being level where you just act because it's you. It's the way you are. It's the way you feel. That always feels good. Okay, now what is this this thing about the uh, you know self-love? Where does self-love turn into a dysfunctional, narcissistic uh, experience rather than a caring experience? Well, I don't like the term self-love i know what people mean by that but if it's self-love there's a problem there i i define love as about other so what is self-love see that becomes an oxymoron it doesn't make any sense it's uh it doesn't compute so self-love i see as not a good thing self-like i see as a necessary thing. You have to like yourself. You have to have confidence in yourself. You have to be okay and good with yourself. Those are all true. Okay? And what that means is if you feel negative about yourself, then what is it that you have to give? Somebody who feels very negative, oh, I'm, I'm nobody, I'm not important, I don't rate, you know, I'm unlovable, I'm ugly, I'm this, I'm that, and you have all this negative stuff about yourself, then what do you actually have to give of yourself at the being level? You've got nothing to give because you don't feel that you have anything. You see, oh, yeah, you could still do your duty or you could still act out of guilt because you could do that, but you have no longer have the ability to just give out of the being level because... You don't have anything to give. You have to have something to give first. So liking yourself, taking care of yourself, you know, combing your hair, tying your shoes, washing your clothes, taking a bath, you know, being, uh, being uh, uh, kind to yourself 
as well, that's important. You have to like yourself. If you don't like yourself, that's a fear. That's a belief. That's ego, and you need to get rid of it. Yes, ego can mean you don't like yourself. Ego can be the wallflower or it can be the bully. Either one. It's ego. It's about you. If you don't like yourself and then it's, I'm unworthy. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not good enough. I'm not competent. I'm not lovable. All that's I, 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 I. It's still ego, even if it's negative. Ego isn't just, I'm the best, I'm in charge, you know, I'm, I'm superior to everyone. That's ego too, but it's ego on the opposite end of the pole. So ego can be the, the, um, those two opposites, that you see yourself as bigger and better and more wonderful than you are, and as you see yourself as littler and smaller and less than you really are. They both stem from fear. They both stem from ego. And both of those, fear and ego, go back to fear. So in as much as you have fear, you have less to give. You see, in as much as it's all about you, then you have, it's all about you, then you have less to give away to somebody else. So let's not talk about self-love. Let's talk about self-like, self-confidence, seeing that you are a valuable person, that you do have something to give, that you do care, that you are competent, you are significant, you're important, you're a human being, you have a mission, you have relationships, you have connections, and all of it's important. You have to see yourself as important. Okay, good. Now, not more important than somebody else. No, now that's ego. But you just accept yourself. You are as you are, and that's good. It's who I am. Now, I can give part of that. That's called love. So, when do we go from, from liking ourselves too much to narcissism? Well, narcissism is actually loving yourself. I'm so wonderful. You see, when you think that you're so wonderful... And that you're so much better than other people. And if people would just listen to you, everything would be fine. You know, if you just people take my advice and do the things I tell them to do, boy, the world would be a great place because I know what's best for everyone. You know, that's narcissism. You live in a universe that you are at its center. You're the center of your universe. Everything else revolves about you. Everything's about you. Everything you hear, everything you see, every comment that's made, it's always about you. What that means, you know, what, how that affects you. So that's the thing that we're talking about here, Huda. We're talking about growing up, giving from the being level, not from the, not from the guilt, not from the, from the intellectual um, ego belief. I believe I should play this role. Therefore, I'll do these things and I'll serve these people because that's my position. That's not love. That's comes right out of the intellect. It's what you think you should be, how you think you should be. You just be authentic. Be yourself. That's who you should be. Authentically you. Not a role, not an image. 
You should just be you. And that may be a problem. A lot of people don't know who they are. Who am I? Just me. Because, you know, I define myself in terms of, you know, I work here. I'm, I have this kind of, you know, I'm a physicist or I'm a nurse or I'm a doctor or I'm a construction worker. And that's part of my identity. And I'm somebody's son and somebody's father and somebody's husband. And we define ourselves in terms of all of that. So we don't really know who we are at all. We're only defining ourselves in terms of other people and our relationship to those people. We need to know who we are. We need to be authentic. And then we need to express ourselves authentically. And then we need to look and see what's the feedback on that. When I'm just authentic in who I am, you know, how does that work? My relationships get better or worse. And if they get better, be more, you know, be more of that authentic. If they get worse, you can say, well, that's how I am, but it's not working too well. Maybe I need to change. Where's that coming from? And then that's feedback. And from the feedback, we grow. Now you can have a new authentic self that's different than the old authentic self and see how that works. This is called growth. This is how we grow up. First, we have to be ourselves and be authentic. Then we have to look at the feedback and then we have to make changes accordingly. It's a long process. <clears throat> and we can make errors in that process. But eventually it'll all settle out and we'll figure it out and life will be good. So be yourself. And in that way, be true to yourself. Don't work a, you know, don't work an image. Don't work being who you think you ought to be. Just be who you are. Let the chips fall wherever they may and learn from where those chips fall and what they do and how that interacts with other people. Are you a part of your and other people's solution or are you part of their problem? Try to become more of the solution and less of the problem. Change who you are. Now try it again. Be authentic. See where the chips fall. Make an adjustment. That's called growing up. Okay, so that's the thing. And uh, you can't have anything to give if you don't give yourself any value. So you have to like yourself. And if you don't like yourself, that's a fear. That's ego. You need to find that fear and get rid of it. And when you do, you'll find that you're actually pretty good. You're a person. You're important. You have connections. Go feed those connections. Make them vibrant and full of life. See, so that's the that's the deal. Don't get bound up in image and what other people expect of you and that sort of thing. Just be who you are. See how that works. Don't do things out of duty. Well, I mean, you have duties. Let's say you have to take care of your children. Well, that's a duty. You can't just say, well, I don't feel like taking care of them this week. You know, I'm going to take a vacation, come back home, see if they're still alive. You know, that's not true. You have responsibility. You have to you have to be responsible for things that you know that are that are yours to be responsible for. Now, I'd say that rather than duty. Yes, we have responsibilities, but you don't have duties in a role. Duties and roles are for acting. That's when we're acting our lives rather than being who we are. So I hope that helps, Huda.
Is that it, Keith? Did they uh, get all of that, or is there more that you need to ask? No, Tom, I think you got all that. I mean, like I said, who would have had a story about it, but we'll come back and, and maybe address that in a future fireside chat. Um, time is fast running away from us. Um, I have 10 questions in front of me. I'm only going to be able to ask a couple of them, so I do apologize to anyone that hasn't had their question uh, asked of Tom today. We will get around to him at a future fireside chat. Uh, the one I am going to ask here is from John Mackay. He says, Tom, apparently I do a great deal of laughing during sleep. I say apparently because despite trying, I can never remember what was so funny. I've always had an interest in comedy performance and would very much like to recall and use the material in my act. <laughs> cool. uh, during meditation, I feel that I'm going to a creative place where I hear stories. and I often try to bring them back to this PMR, but I'm always unsuccessful. Can you give me any advice? And would this actually be stealing others' creative ideas or just sharing stories in order to make people happy? Well, there is some advice I can give you. The way you bring information back is when you're there and you get the information, you need to realize it. Oh, this is interesting. I'd like to bring this back. Or in your case, this is funny. I'd like to bring this back. Then what you have to do is repeat it to yourself. Say, all right, this was the point. Here was the joke. Here's the lead up. There was the punchline. That's funny. I can use that material. Then you repeat it again. Say it over in your mind a dozen times. Go over it and over it and over it and over it, and then you will remember it. It's when you're in that hazy state where your intellect really has shut down, you're working out of the being level, and you get something at the being level, and then you come back, it's gone because you never really dealt with it in your intellect in the first place. You dealt with it only in the being level. So you have the feeling of it because that's what's in your being level. You've got the sense of it and the feeling and kind of the intuitive, the way it was, because that was your being level experience, but you don't have the linear language part of it because you never really dealt with it in your intellect. Force it up into your intellect for four or five or six or 10 iterations, whatever it takes where you go through it, that forces it into your intellect. Now your intellect will probably remember it when you get back. So your meditations are good in that you're in the being level, but that's why you don't remember it very well because you are entirely in the intuitive level and everything is coming in terms of feelings and understandings at a paragraph level, a, a telepathic level, not in terms of language and, and, uh, and uh, details but you can put those details up in your intellect go over them and they will tend to stick if you do that so it'll take some practice first time or two you'll get half of it you won't get the whole thing but eventually you'll learn to get it and then eventually after that you know like uh, maybe six months later a year later you won't have the problem letting it go you'll be able to get it in your intellect one time and take it back with you you won't need all the repetition but in the beginning, the more repetition will make it easier to bring it back. So that's how you bring back gems. If you're out there and you just run into something, then you know that's significant. I really want to make sure I get that back. Then push it up into your intellect. Repeat it enough times to remember it, and you will. Have, an, have the intention. I will remember this when I get back. I will remember this and go through it again in your mind, and you will. So that's the way to do it. And the fact that you laugh in your dreams, I think that's delightful. You obviously are a person who enjoys humor. 
and who likes to laugh. And that is a wonderful trait to have. So where other people scream at their nightmares or, you know, fuss at the people who just won't pay attention to them in their dreams. Um, the fact that you find things to laugh at, that's, uh, that's remarkable. Probably not a lot of people do that, but it's a really good sign <laughs> because in our dreams, we are who we are. That's, we express ourselves at the, from a being level when we're in a dream. So in your dream, you're having fun and, uh, that's good. Thank you, Tom. Final question of the day goes to Nessie. Um, Nessie writes, which element of the work you have undertaken do you think will have the greatest impact in future years? The push towards the realization that this is a VR or the huge amount of information you have made available to those of us at the cold face, so to speak? Has your work been two-pronged or are there other elements at play? Also, are there plans in place for others like yourself to keep pushing the momentum with quality guidance in this PMR in the decades to come? Uh, well, that last one's above my pay grade. Uh, I won't comment on that one. But um, the others, I think it's all part of the same thing. You know, the virtual reality thing that uh, I hope will eventually take this idea that we are a subset of something that is larger and more significant and more fundamental than this physical. We're a subset of consciousness and that consciousness uh, is the consciousness is the creator. If you will, consciousness is the thing that's fundamental and we're in this virtual reality, like all virtual realities in order to play a game and there's ways to win and ways to lose. Uh, we're here for a purpose for a reason. And we have a mission while we're here, and that is to grow up and become love. So if that became widely understood, then you'd have a whole lot more people who were serious about growing up. And like we said earlier, if you're serious about growing up, you can grow up a whole lot faster. So suddenly people would be growing up more, you know, in a, in a month than they had over the last five or ten lifetimes because they are focused on it they understand it they want to do it it's part of their intent that would be a big change but i see it all together so that's just the vr side of it is a way to help people see that picture because it would it's a it's a rational picture it's a logical picture it's a scientific picture and in our culture that makes it a lot more compelling than if it's a belief picture if it's um, you know a, a non-rational picture, if it's just an intuitive picture, it's not nearly as credible. So that's important for that reason. But that's only important because of all the other stuff, which means you come to the conclusion that uh, that you know we are uh, here for a purpose, and that the purpose is to become love. So all those other things, and that become love translates into your everyday life it has to do about caring and about giving about cooperation and about kindness and helpfulness you see and compassion and having all of that stuff is important the virtual reality is just sort of the thing to help people see it from a rational perspective because in our culture rational is what works belief gets put off in the margins Rational arguments hold sway. So that makes that important. But the only reason it's important is because what it delivers on the back end is love and caring and compassion, lower entropy, growing up. And that 
needs no explanation of why that's a good thing to do, particularly in our world now where we're struggling. We've always been struggling, but our struggles are even more obvious now. Just like we always, uh, you know, we always ate animals, but the fact that we're abusing them on a large scale now is just more obvious to us now than it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, nobody thought about it. Sure, we eat animals. That's what they're for, right? I mean, why would there be animals if we weren't supposed to eat them? Now we have a little bigger attitude in that animals are uh, conscious beings just like we are. They have limitations, and uh, we have limitations. Our limitations are different than animals, but they're still here and functioning and have a life. And so we've just, you grow up with these understandings and that's what it's all about. So it's not really a two prong approach or one or something. It's the whole thing is a, it's an overall attitude about who we are and why we're here. That's what it's all about. And that attitude can make your life go from miserable, constantly struggling, never can quite get it right. Life is always a chore and it's always tough and it's always painful to life is a joy. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a thrill to be alive here, to be in this simulator. It's just so much fun, you know, growing up and doing what you can do and dealing with things as they happen. And so you go from, from being miserable, being depressed to being happy and life is good. And you go from being part of the problem, contributing to the, to the downer, contributing to the fear to where you're contributing to the solution. So it's, it's about, it's all about all those things. It's about everyday life. It's about how to raise your kids. It's like how to treat your parents. It's about, uh, you know, relationship. It's about your, your significant other. You know, relationship is where the rubber meets the road. That's where our ego and our beliefs really get squeezed to the point that we have to deal with them is in those relationships. So it's about all of that. So it's, it's not really a bunch of separate things. It's everything together about living, about being. It's about daily life. It's about big pictures. It's about, you know, virtual reality. It's all that stuff together. And I can't separate it into different things. I guess you could draw circles around pieces of it, but mostly it's all integrated into one, one thing. It's an attitude. It's a way of seeing life and reality and it works. It does make you happy. It makes your life terrific. If you can apply it and as you grow up and it's a no brainer, right? Isn't happiness and caring and cooperation better than, you know, the opposite. It's uh, doesn't seem like it's should be a hard sell. So we done Keith. That is it, Tom. Yes, we are. Another fireside chat becomes a part of the actualized database. (laughs) As always, I want to thank everyone who joined us today. Uh, Thank you to Oliver, as always, for hosting, and Justin for recording and uh, the wonderful job you do on the editing. Uh, On a side note, now, Justin, you may want to edit this out. I don't know. Uh, Justin is a fantastic artist. We have just purchased a piece of uh, a print of one of his works. So if you're interested out there, you should visit his website, justinsnodgrass.com. Uh, Thank you, Tom, as always. Thank you out there for watching.